Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 195. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Monkino, our Father, our King. Lord, we are so blessed to know that um, in your faithfulness, you have brought us through another season of your times of refreshing, of, um, of blessing, of encouragement, of rejoicing. Um, the special days that you've set apart on your calendar are for our benefit. Uh, as I'm fond of, um, of recognizing and stating and teaching, they are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. They tell the, uh, the life and times of your son, Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's really a shame that um, a good segment of of those in in Christianity have uh, been informed that these days are no longer relevant for them. Um, they're they're missing out on a lot of 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 just rich uh, experience of of um, interacting with you, Father. And so um, help us, Lord, to to return to what's important to you help us to to make our calendar match your calendar you put those special days on your calendar for a reason and you told us to mark these days out you told israel mark these days out um make these days special to you because they are uh special to you israel because we know that they're special to you lord so thank you lord that um you're calling us out and you're calling us uh upward and onward and and uh into that more um strengthened relationship with you uh, by your spirit forgive us lord where we where we fall so short um help us to to continue to practice messianic sympathy towards one another uh, in our respective communities uh, both near and far lord no one's got um a perfect view of this plan that we're walking out but um that's why we trust your spirit and we will rely on him to continue to empower us to lead lives that are pleasing to you turning from sin and saying yes to yeshua so thank you, Lord, for these opportunities to teach and to share my thoughts with the students. Bless everyone where they're at. Continue to uh, protect us, raise us up, keep us safe, and provide for us. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Just want to thank everyone once again for joining me during these live studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and I'm a Torah teacher at a real-life congregation in Thornton, Colorado, uh, called The Harvest, Kehilat The Harvest Congregation. And uh, we've been on break really for two weeks during the special holidays, the holy days that I mentioned in my prayer. So I'm um, ready to jump back into our study. And so this hour-long study, broken up to two 30-minute segments, the first 30-minute segment that we're about to embark on is a study entitled, Are Judaism and Christianity Incompatible with One Another? It's a study on a passage out of the book of Matthew that you can see on your screen right now. The second 30-minute segment to my study is given over to the apologetic um, commentary that I put together online entitled Exploring the Shema Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. And so we've been dialoguing for the last almost, has it been two years, three years? I've lost track of time. I think it's almost been three years um, on the idea of the triune nature of the God that we serve. And we've been just looking at it from a variety of different angles. So those are the two studies. Hope you can make it for all the entire uh, full hour long study. Let's jump right into the Matthew study. Um, let me read the relevant passage, and then I'll jump right into my own commentary. So, as you can see on your screen, I've got the ESV pulled up version of your Bible, Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. This is a story that's been recorded for us in three of the four Gospels, 
and um, some various details that show up in one book versus the other. But the gist of the um, parable or story is the same in all three. Uh, it's labeled a question about fasting by ESV. So let me just read this uh, section right here that you can see on my screen. And it reads, starting verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, speaking of Yeshua, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but you, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, And Jesus says to them, uh, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And then verse 16, And then Yeshua provides these two parables. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And then verse 17, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. And that's the end of Matthew's reading. If you were to pull this up in Luke's reading, Luke chapter 5, I believe, then you'll find that at the very end of the parable, he adds these details, something to the effect of, No one after drinking old wine desires new wine for he says to himself the old wine is and then depending on which version you have it it says the old wine is better or it says the old wine is is good or something like that and so the reason we're having this discussion on my youtube channel and on this itunes podcast is as you know i approach the bible from a messianic hebraic perspective what that means is as a christian man I fully believe that God's words are relevant for our lives, even the Old Testament scriptures, even the Old Testament commandments, the laws of Moses. It doesn't mean that we can keep every single commandment because a lot of them are unkeepable, right? There's no temple, no priests, no animal sacrifice, etc. But to the degree that we can walk in what God left us in his word by the power of the Holy Spirit, well, then we submit to that. This is contrary or unlike a lot of mainstream Christianity who has been taught for hundreds of years, um, even almost a, a couple thousand years, that the law has been done away with. It's no longer relevant for us. And this is all part of this um, theology that has been labeled replacement theology, supersessionism, something to that effect. It's this idea that what happened in the New Testament when God sent his son to the world to die for our sins, to um, um, resurrect to the Father, and to send his Holy Spirit, what happened is that he enacted a new covenant. And in this new covenant, this is standard Christian perspective that I'm describing, in this new covenant, Jesus' sacrifice, as it were, set us free as followers, free from obligation to the law of Moses. Thus, um, we basically have no um, need to go back and you know look through all the details of how to keep Sabbath and kosher and follow through the festivals and you know put the tzitzit on our clothing and mezuzah on our door, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's because all of those things are shadows, and this is what's taught to us in standard Christian theology. These are um, things that were um, pointing to Messiah. Now that the fullness of Messiah has come, these things have given way to a new and better way. And so we have these kind of um, uh, uh, kind of a dichotomy that's set up. We have the Old versus the New, the Old Testament versus the New Testament in the broadest sense, the Law of Moses versus the Law of Christ, the um, 
uh, what do we say, the people of Israel versus the people of the church or Gentile Christianity, if you want to label it that way. Um, and so these are, or we have New Old Testament versus New Testament, Old Covenant versus New Covenant. So these are discussions that happen when you kind of have a dialogue with people about, well, what do you think about the Old Testament on a kind of a kind of a general, um, uh, generic kind of basis, garden variety uh, Christian, if you will. And so this discussion that I'm having here about Matthew finds its home in the uh, replacement theology camp because in the parables that were left for us by the master, by Yeshua, if you'll notice, he answers the question as to why his disciples don't fast with, fast with an immediate, well, the wedding guests are going to um, rejoice when the bridegroom's here. And, you know, someday the bridegroom is going to leave. And when that happens, then when he's taken away, then they can fast. But for now, since he's here and I'm him, by the way, this Yeshua speaking, well, then fasting is the wrong approach, right? You don't want to mourn and fast at a wedding. It's just it's just not common sense. It doesn't make any good sense. And so he follows that that answer up with these two parables that are kind of enigmatic because he doesn't give us any, um, uh, what do we say, um, um, uh, uh, interpretation, immediate interpretation, like he does with other parables. Sometimes he'll say the kingdom of heaven is like thus and such, and then he'll say to his disciples, you know what, you don't understand it? Let me explain it to you, and then blah, blah, blah. He'll lay it out. But he doesn't do that this time. And so what Christianity, historic Christianity has done is they have supplied an a, a, um, an interpretation, a kind, of a, an anal a, a kind of an analogy or a homily or um, some type of interpretation, and it amounts to this idea that Jesus is actually bringing something so radically new that it is actually incompatible with the old. So let me stop and let that sink in. Right? That's the kind of historic, overarching Christian perspective is Jesus teaching his radical new way of living is is diametrically different and opposed to the old way of living and approaching God. And so we have this idea of, do we approach God by keeping the commandments and keeping the law of Moses? Or do we now approach God by walking in love and by grace and forgiveness in the way of the cross and things like that? Those, that's why we have this old versus new dichotomy set up using this passage and the interpretations of the um, parables as our uh, impetus. So that's why we're having this discussion. As you know, I disagree with that interpretation. I think we should have even just left it at the common sense factor, you know. Why are you guys not fasting? Well, because it's a wedding. Why would you fast? Um, and then Yeshua kind of, you know, bang, bang with two more common sense examples, you know. You want to put a piece of cloth back together, your clothing that you like. You want to patch that thing up. Use some common sense when you're patching it. Otherwise, you're going to have a mess. Same thing is true with putting wine into wineskins. You want to transfer new wine into wineskins. You've got to do some thinking first and planning. Otherwise, you're going to have a mess on your hands. So common sense can be applied to... Um, the entire section, the entire um, uh, uh, answer plus the parables, we don't even have to go into this idea of replacement theology. We don't even have to add that interpretation. But historic Christianity has done that. There are other translation or other interpretations, and that's where we're going to now turn and look at some of those. So let me pick up where we left off two weeks ago. In my own commentary, which is available on my website at tatetora.com, I said, and we just looked at Tim Haig's 
um, commentary. Tim Haig's a Messianic Jewish author. He writes from a pro-Torah perspective. He's going to take a perspective that um, I highly appreciate and um, agree with because it's going to say, well, it doesn't really fit with the, Bi- the rest of the Bible if we teach that Jesus came to do away with the law. It doesn't fit with the prophecies that God gave to Israel of old about how that one day he would fill them with his spirit and cause them to walk into his ways, right? It doesn't fit with the lifestyle that we know Jesus to have led or even the Apostle Paul to have led, right? They were both Torah-observant Jewish men. So, we read through Tim Haig's commentary, and here's the conclusion to what I said there. I said, in my personal opinion, Haig's remarks are so completely self-explanatory that I need little or no supporting commentary of my own to elaborate his thoughts to you. Instead, I will simply jump to the summary and conclusions of my own commentary. So now we're ready for summary. So let's look at my own commentary and pick up my reading. Here's what I have to say. In our opening few paragraphs, we started by defining replacement theology, which is the notion that the church has replaced Israel as the viable and ongoing people of God and concluded that it is seriously lacking in its biblical accuracy. So we're talking about replacement theology, and I go on to say that it's lacking because it's based on the fact that ancient prophecy as well as later scriptures clearly portray the ongoing relationship that God has with historic Israel, right? And I give you one example from Romans 11, uh, 25 through 26. So just briefly, the idea of replacement theology, fortunately, is a, is a, is a bit, it's, um, how do I say, it's, it's not very well um, spoken of, even in Christian circles. Obviously, for someone like me as a Jew, you don't want to be on the receiving end of replacement theology because you're the people that are being replaced, right? How, how does that feel when someone knocks on your door, you open the door, and they're carrying this big, huge KJV Bible and, they, and a big cross around their neck, and they're, say, and they're telling you, you're a Jew. And they're telling you, hey, we're from the church down the street. We're here to witness and talk to you about Jesus and about God. And, oh, by the way, the Jews are out. The Christians are in. The Gentiles are in. You know, how does that make you feel? All right. It doesn't make me feel too good as a Jew when I'm being told that my people are being replaced by a new people, right? Somehow God went back on his word when he said he was going to be our God forever and that he, as his people, he would bless us forever and, and keep us as his people. But nope, I guess he was... I guess he was he was fibbing, right? He was lying to us, or he changed. He was telling the truth at the time. He changed his mind or something, right? Um, so, you know, replacement theology has its serious problems. Sorry. So let's um, keep reading my commentary. I go on to say the Bible does not support replacement theology, and that's why I said that there are a lot of really serious Christian groups that, if you confront them, if you ask them. I don't mean confront them in a in a in a uh, mean way, all right. I mean just get them to try to speak plainly and not in in riddles. But if you ask them, you know, do you believe that the church has replaced Israel? Often they'll say no. That's not what we believe. We just believe that Jesus. You ready for it? They're gonna they're gonna use the F word, and it's not the F word you're thinking. They're gonna say Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, right? But fulfillment theology. Oftentimes, it's just another fancy word for replacement theology. If you, in fact, if you let them elaborate, they'll, they'll talk about how that Jesus fulfilled the law, so we don't have to do it anymore. Jesus fulfilled the blah, 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 blah. And it, but it, it really kind of amounts to the same um, concept. But um, we're not going to talk about that right now. Just, just safe to say that replacement theology, and you can do a Google search with this and do your own research, but replacement theology in its, in its, 
in its most natural sense is right. The meaning of it's right in the word replacement, replacement theology. Again, um, I go on to say, uh, owing to the reality that many Christians are heavily influenced, are you ready for this? Not by careful and personal exegesis, which is the extracting from the text of any given passage, but instead, I say, unfortunately, eisegesis, which is not reading out from the text, but it's a reading into the text, and by, and they're influenced by prevailing historic views of those passages. Then what we did is, in my study, we turned to Matthew 9, 14 through 17, and I did this to demonstrate how Yeshua's parable of the unshrunk patch, along with the parable of the wineskins, right? This is um, the story that we're looking at currently in our uh, study. This has become a well-known launching point to essentially purport that Judaism and Christianity are incompatible with one another. Let me pause for a second right there. When I say incompatible, what I mean is, if you listen to, and go back and do this on your own, go back and look up the, the Christian pastors that I singled out in my commentary, and do go further than that. Look up your own resources and find out if your own pastor's teaching that we're no longer that you're no longer under the law as a Christian, as a Gentile Christian, that you're no, no longer obligated to keep the laws of Moses. Ask him why. And you'll find often that Christianity has inherited this narrative that teaches, well, the Jews of the first century, they believe that if you want to be righteous before God and be saved, you had to keep the laws of Moses. You have to walk in all the commandments, bring the sacrifices, etc. So it was a kind of a works theology, a works merit, a merit theology, a works-based religion. And so when Jesus came on the scene and taught how one is to truly find eternal life and be pleasing to God, then what Jesus taught was that you cannot work your way to heaven. And thus, the old system of works is incompatible with grace theology with grace and and um forgiveness uh grace by faith and, and faith in messiah etc etc so you see if you set up that sort of what we would recognize as a straw man argument where you describe Ju um ancient jewish uh theology as works righteousness then it's very easy to knock that straw man over when i say straw man think scarecrow it's very easy as a christian gentile the gentile christian to knock that straw man over with your faith and with your grace and with the law of christ because it is easily seen that the new testament does not support merit theology and i also agree with that basic tenet right so listen please don't misunderstand what i'm saying it is absolutely true that you cannot work your way to heaven. There are no amount of works that you can do to gain your way into heaven. It doesn't matter if the works are even rooted in Torah. It doesn't matter if the works are spelled out in the law of Moses. It doesn't matter if you're a card-carrying Jew. <clears throat> you simply cannot earn your um, salvation by either your merit or your good works or your good looks, right, as one pastor said. You can't earn it by your... Um, uh, by your Jewish status or any such thing. It is by grace that we're saved through faith that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's kind of a paraphrase of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2. So, I affirm as a Messianic Jew um, that we can't earn our way into heaven. And yet, is it really true that that's what the Judaisms of the first century were teaching? Is it really true that that's what they're still teaching today? So, where's the opposition, right? So, when I say Judaism and Christianity are incompatible with one another, are we saying that Messianic Judaism is an empty set? You cannot be a Christian Jew? 
Is it true that once you come to Christ that you have to give up your Jewishness? You have to give up your law-keeping, your respect and devotion to Torah? Is this true? Right? It has been taught in, in certain circles, in Christian circles. Fortunately, it's no longer um, PR, right? It's not, it's not really even, I mean, can you imagine the, 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 the uh, serious pushback? And, um, uh, um, you know, in this day and age of, of everyone's enlightened, right, the, this woke society that we live in, you say something bad about one people group and suddenly you got lawsuits flying over your head. So um, saying that Judaism is, um, is a bankrupt religion is not going to fly in today's modern age. So we talk about this idea, are Judaism and Christian incompatible with one another? And uh, we also talked about, as I say, the idea that Judaism must give way to Christianity if a person wishes to become a genuine and lasting follower of Yeshua and his father. And so it's an unfortunate patch of history, of Gentile Christian history, where the Gentile Christian church kind of ran with this idea that Jesus is bringing something so radically new that Judaism is incompatible with this new way of approaching God. And Jewish people in the early or in the earlier days of the um, emergence of the Gentiles onto the scene as as uh, full-fledged members of the church, um, so what what Christians would recognize as the early church, uh, so, so starting from the book of Acts and going forward, it was very, it's it wasn't, uh, it wasn't uncommon in the later centuries to follow to find Gentile Christianity um, forcing Jews into an uncomfortable corner where they had to abandon their Jewish lifestyle if they wanted to convince people that they were genuine Christians. Um, you have to give up all that Sabbath keeping, give up all your kosher keeping. Um, you need to start doing all of the um, things that make you look like a Gentile Christian. Eventually, um, Messianic Judaism kind of dropped off the map. It kind of went underground. Um, even though the first uh, followers of Yeshua were Jews and they were believers, they were Christians, so they were they were Messianic Jews. And then we have Gentiles that were joining this this Hebraic movement, this Jewish movement, you know, this movement led by a Jewish uh, martyr. And those Gentiles who originally joined still did what Gentiles would call Jewish things. They were still meeting in Sabbaths. They were still um, walking after the laws of Moses because that's what they were taught from the Messiah and from the, uh, the apostles. And yet, again, as, as time moved forward, um, that Messianic Jewish expression of life uh, gave way. It, it collapsed. It couldn't hold up uh, because the majority opinion was, well, all of this is really done away with. It's been replaced or it's been full. I'm going to use the F word again. It's been fulfilled. All right, so let's keep reading my own commentary. So I say, essentially, we um, demonstrated in my commentary that this view would leave no room for Messianic Judaism since all followers of Yeshua would become de facto, quote, New Testament Christians, end quote. That's kind of the term that's used today. We're, we're not Old Testament Christians. We're New Testament Christians. And I say this would be said with no cultural ties to historic Judaism and its ritual laws and customs. And so if you ask your average Gentile Christian today, 
They'll probably let you know, no, I'm not an Old Testament. I'm not an Old Covenant Christian. I'm not an Old Testament believer. I'm a New Testament Christian. And I have to actually stop and give a little bit of credit for their answer. Obviously, they're being honest, but we need to nuance the phrase Old Covenant and New Covenant or Old Testament, New Testament, because it's quite often the case that what they mean by Old Covenant and Old Testament is not actually what either I mean or what I understand Paul to mean by those same phrases. So if you ask me, Ariel, are you under the old covenant? It depends on my understanding of your understanding of the word old covenant. I might say, yes, I am under the old covenant, or I might say, no, I'm not under the old covenant. And just let you kind of scratch your head and figure out what my confusing answer is. Obviously, I'm I'm inviting a dialogue on the topic, Old Covenant, New new Covenant. And I've got a short little video that I put together. I'll flash a little um, uh, thumbnail on the screen in post-production on on, um, the topic of Old Covenant, taken from uh, kind of a short mini-study on 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, where Paul uses that phrase, Old Covenant. So... Most people would call themselves New Testament Christians, New Covenant Christians, and that's their way of simply saying, we don't have to keep the law of Moses anymore, right? It's been done away with or it's been fulfilled. Let's continue my commentary. Let's see how much time I got. Uh, About five more minutes. Let me see. Can I finish this paragraph? Yes, I can. All right. So I go on to say, in my commentary, what we did is we presented a sample sermon from Pastor John Piper and saw how in my personal estimation, his interpretation of Matthew 9, 14 through 17 supported an application that does not allow Judaism as, quote, old wine to coexist with the, quote, new wine of Yeshua's teachings. So I have the highest respect for Pastor Piper. Um, he's one of my favorites. He's a, he's a giant of faith. And for good reason. Um, I can highly recommend his commentaries and his teachings even though he's not, as I would describe, pronomian or protora, or doesn't visibly teach it, we should be keeping the law of Moses, like the Sabbaths, kosher festivals, things like that, circumcision. As far as I know, he doesn't support that perspective. However, as a Christian, it's vital that we have the foundations of our faith in place. Um, and if you're not grounded in the foundations of your faith, then really all your Torah observant stuff isn't going to matter because you're going to be um, susceptible to every wind of doctrine that comes your way. Um, just because you're walking in Torah doesn't mean you're a grounded Christian. So uh, people like Pastor Piper are going to help you remain solidly rooted in um, the pillars of your faith. And so for that reason, even if you are a Torah observant, messianic follower of you, Jesus, right? You're one of these Hebraic rooters or something like that. Um, do yourself a favor and uh, check out his teachings, right? It might be a little hard to stomach at first because all of all of his, he doesn't talk about Torah all the time, right? And when he does, he's talking about how it's been fulfilled in Jesus and things like that. Just overlook those um, those uh, blind spots, okay? And uh, do yourself a favor and add him to your um, to your arsenal. All right, so I'm going to say, uh, I don't believe, however, in my commentary, that replacement theology was Pastor Piper's main purpose for presenting. The teaching, and what I'm I'm talking about the one that I actually quoted, right? That I lifted and pulled into my commentary. I don't think he was actually singling out replacement theology uh, when he talked about what he talked about. Nevertheless, I go on to say, um, we saw that even though Pastor Piper postulated such a pejorative view of Judaism, he indeed does deserve. Got a typo there. He deserves indeed does deserves <laughs> deserve our respect and admiration as a strong, mature. 
shepherd of God. And I say that in all honesty. I'm not trying to kind of pull a funny on you. Um, Pastor Piper is just an absolute invaluable resource um, um, when it comes to growing in the essentials of God. And we're not talking about baby stuff either. We're talking about solid meat, right? So um, you're not going to be um, fed milk. You're going to get some real genuine meat if you um, if you uh, uh, partake from his teaching. So uh, go check it out. Pastor John Piper, P-I-P-E-R. I go on to say, his thoughts, we concluded, are merely the product, no doubt, of centuries of poor Christian interpretation and application on the role and the function of Torah and Israel in relation to Gentiles and Christianity. So he's just a result of a narrative that's been handed down for uh, year after year, decade after decade, century after century. So I'm not faulting him entirely. I'm just saying he's standing on the same um, information that's been handed to him. So he wasn't around when the information first started circulating, you know, 2000 years ago. Um, neither was I. And so, um, you know, it's no wonder why um, some of the theology that he inherited inherited is part of his um, uh, his narrative. So I conclude in this little section, we'll call it quits for this part tonight. I conclude, I say, in other words, Pastor Piper is probably just repeating what he was taught in seminary, right? Um, that's what he was taught. And so you're going to be a product of what came before you it's not to say that he's not that he's just parroting and that he can't think on his own not you know that's quite the contrary he does have his own thoughts but the overarching um foundational um mindset that he's going to approach the text from is going to obviously be influenced by um what he learned in seminary that's not to say that he couldn't change on his own he, he could um you can go through seminary and then come out the other end and completely disagree with your professors and things like that but that's going to do it for um, this section of uh, Judaism v. Christianity for tonight. Um, starting next week, we'll turn and, and look at some more of the uh, commentary and keep working our way through this summary section, okay? These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Uh, my name is Arubin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a member of the Harvest Congregation, a real live congregation in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at graftedin.com. We'd love to have you join us live in person at our synagogue services week after week. But if you're still just a little bit uncomfortable getting out and about, at least find us online and follow our YouTube channel and watch the videos like you can see on my screen right now. You're also... Um, Invited to head on over to TetzeTorah.com. That's my own personal Torah teaching website. T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com is the uh, URL address if you'd like to bookmark it in your browser. Um, you can see a cluster of links there to different studies that I've put together. This is not the exhaustive list, but it's just kind of the core list that I draw from. And so um, have a look around. And um, if you like what you're um, reading, um, be sure to investigate a little bit further because a lot of what I write turns into either a YouTube video or an iTunes podcast or something to that effect. Speaking of YouTube videos, find me on the YouTube platform at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Ministries, all one word there, C for channel. And you'll notice right away that you'll see that I update my channel daily. I'm typically 
uploading a video like a short five minute video on the topic uh, every day twice a day sometimes and uh, even twice on the weekends or something like that I try to keep fairly busy um, make sure that you uh, browse around through all the um, uh, channels and videos and playlists that I do make available on my website and for those of you in post-production you can see that I've got a bunch of uh, um, suggestions dancing around the screen subscribe to my YouTube channel uh, hit the bell for notifications leave me comments uh, or questions or corrections hit the thumbs up if you like what you're watching and make sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles some important details uh, that if you'd like to join us for our live studies is get access to Skype somehow on whatever device that you're using, smartphone or smartwatch or uh, desktop or laptop or iPad or um, you know Android device or whatever. Um, get access to Skype and um, that's the platform that we use uh, week after week. In fact, if you click on the blue Skype link that you see on my screen right now, it'll launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer and uh, you don't have to do anything any, any other installing if that's what you'd like to do so we'd love to have you join us week after week uh, via Skype but if not um, if you are on my website sometime at tatesaytora.com take a moment to scroll down to the very very bottom to that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing and carefully pray about partner partnering with me during this difficult time that I'm still in it's been quite a long um, famine is what I'm calling it um, of uh, of um, employment um, where I'm still um, just kind of relying on uh, God's grace and favor to keep me uh, afloat uh, and that's accomplished through your um, gifts and contributions and, and prayers and support and uh, um, just uh, monies that are being sent in via the internet this is the mechanism right here click the little yellow donate button um, that shows up on my site here or in the each video I put a little link to this same um, uh, PayPal feature link as well as it shows up in my newsletters to give people an opportunity to help support me um, I'm so absolutely thankful and grateful to be on the receiving end of your generosity and I pray that the Lord will continue to bless you out there those of you who are regular givers just absolutely um, so grateful I can't express my gratitude enough at how um, how thankful I am and absolutely humbled uh, to be in a place where God's using you to bless me during this difficult time so uh, please do continue to keep giving uh, those of you who are regular givers those of you who just give me one-time gifts that's fine as well too I mean uh, God uh, creates the increase. God knows the need. God creates the increase. Um, you guys are just on the on the uh, position of being used uh, by God uh, to bless me. So thank you, thank you, thank you. As I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, and jump back into my study. We took a two-week break uh, for the festivals, for the fall feasts. Hope you had a, a great time in the Lord. Hope that you're well-rested and blessed and refreshed and ready to jump back on the horse and start riding again. In this study on um, the Trinity, uh, it's a three-part study. It's about 50-something-odd pages on my website in PDF format. And it's broken up into three papers, right? Pun intended there, study on the Trinity, three papers. And so the first paper is given over to talking about the monotheistic truth of who God is and that there's only one God that we serve. The second paper is given over to a discussion about the um, nature of the Son of God, right? Jesus Christ, Jesus our Messiah, the hypostatic union between God and man. How can Jesus be God and yet be man, right? 
we walked our way through some technical phrases and we used a lot of um, examples to show how there are lots of skeptics who believe that this is um, logically incoherent to say that Jesus is God or that Jesus is or that God is th three and one at the same time, et cetera, et cetera. And then in paper three, where we're at now is near the very end of this paper about the Holy Spirit. And so we're in this um, paragraph or this section number seven entitled, Who or What is the Holy Spirit? Revisiting the Holy Spirit passages from paper two. <clears throat> Excuse me, from paper two. And what I did in paper two is I, I provided a list, a chart, of verses and it's a table where it's got father son holy spirit across the top as its headings the column headings and then there are labels or titles or attributes that run down the left hand column that describe god in his dealings with mankind or certain characters and properties and attributes and 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 uh qualities of god that we can observe as we read through our bibles and then there are verses that fill in the spaces in between that show how that the Bible purposely overlaps these titles and attributes with one another with the persons of God so that we can get this composite picture. And we can walk away with this idea that purposely the same Hebrew and Greek phrases and terms and actions are attributed across the Trinitarian uh, perspective landscape so that we can come to the conclusion that we're dealing with one being who nevertheless is three persons, three hypostases, right? Three uh, distinct persons that have their own dealings with humanity. And um, all three of them are co-eternal, co-equal, um, uh, co-powerful, um, consubstantial. Um, they, have, they share the same uh, nature as one another. And so we're not talking about three beings. We're talking about three persons, and so there's no logical uh, inconsistency. It's not logically incoherent to say that God is one and yet three and yet one, because we we carefully define the differences between the one and the three, so we're not running into identity errors. So, we're looking at the Holy Spirit, and um, let me just jump right into the study. Let me scroll down a bit and show you what I'm talking about when I say the the the, the title, the, uh, the table. You can see on my screen right now, I didn't really do it justice. I got about a third of the way through the table, and then we got derailed, I don't say derailed, but distracted, I did, allowed myself to go off into, um, into side topics, um, tangents, and talk about other things, and so I apologize if that was difficult for you to follow. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to start back up at the top of the study and just read down through it, and when I get to these passages, I'm not going to look every one of these up. I'm simply going to kind of paraphrase what the verses talk about. I may look, look up one or two of them, but... Um, I want you to go back and look them up on your own. And the reason I'm not going to look them all up is because I don't have the Father and the Son here in my table. And so I've kind of stripped away the force of the way the table is supposed to work inadvertently. I didn't do it on purpose. It just kind of came out that way. So let's go back up to the top of this section. And if I just read and stop, uh, don't stop and uh, make like copious amounts of ex explanation, um, I might actually be able to get through uh, this whole section. So you ready? Here we go. Here's what I have to say. I do not subscribe language that relegates the Spirit of God, viz. the Holy Spirit, or if you want to use his Hebrew phrase, it's Ruach HaKodesh. I don't subscribe to language that relegates the Holy Spirit to a mere impersonal force of energy who has decidedly been divested of his personal attributes. And I say this right away because the Holy Spirit's that person of the Trinity that's hard to put your finger on, but I think it's by design. When you look at God the Father, he's this 
um, foundational aspect of the Trinity that we read about all throughout the Old Testament, this central figure that looms large, he's the creator, he's the um, deliverer from, from the bondage of Egypt, Egypt, right? He's the one that brings the children of Israel into the promised land. And he's the one that carries them along with the prophecies and the, the, the all the, the promises and the protection. And then when we get to the New Testament, we're suddenly um, met face-to-face with the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is fully human, and yet we're left with these um, truths that he's fully divine. He's truly divine, right? He's very God-veiled in flesh. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the Word of God made flesh. And yet the Father hasn't disappeared, right? So the Father's still there, but the Father is the one who's speaking from heaven. You know, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Father is the one who's sending the Son on these missions, right? The Father is the one who's commissioning the Son, who's empowering the Son. And so um, we haven't lost sight of the Father. But then by the time we get to Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is front and center for us as well. And yet the Holy Spirit is not speaking on his own authority, even though he's fully God, just like God the Father and God the Son. The Holy Spirit is fully God, and yet the Holy Spirit takes this um, role where he enforces the words of Yeshua. He allows himself to be sent from the Father and sent from the Son, and that's his role. He fills us with the Spirit of Messiah and the Spirit of God and his own presence. He fills us so that we can have this fellowship with God and with Yeshua and with one another and with himself, right? The Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit plays this very on purpose kind of invisible role, right? Pun intended. He's a spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones like Jesus or the Father. The Father is pure spirit as well. So when we talk about identifying his works and what he's doing, you know, it's on purpose, I believe, that we don't have a verse that says pray to the Holy Spirit or we don't have examples of people praying to the Holy Spirit. Like we have people praying to Jesus and people praying to God throughout the Bible. Um, it's by design. It's not some mistake on God's part where he's trying to let us know, hey, I'm not fully God in the Spirit, in the person of the Spirit. Don't pray to me. That's not what's going on. All right, so let's keep reading. I say my comment, to, to be sure, uh, in my experience, non-Trinitarian Christian and quasi-Christian denominations such as, and this is just a smattering list, this is not even a full list, but we've got some biblical Unitarians that we talked about. We talked about Oneness Pentecostals, Iglesiani Christo, Christadelphians, some of these you probably never heard of, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, La Luz del Mundos, and then we have Church of the Blessed Hope. Then we also encounter um, the Way International. If we talk about uh, views on the Holy Spirit, we talk about United Church of God. And there are many others in the list that I could have um, put here, but I say in others listed, not likely here. And what I find is that they often have similar beliefs with each other when it comes to the issues of the deity of Yeshua, that is Jesus, and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And what are those similarities? Here's what I say. Germane to our study is that almost without exception, the majority of these non-Trinitarian groups relegate the Holy Spirit to the category of a power from God, an aspect of God's personal power, an active force that God uses to accomplish His will, the essence of God 
a mode of God that is um, a mask, when I say mode, that resembles the person of the Holy Spirit, which uh, God the Father can swap out with a mask that, to we humans, resembles the Father at times or that resembles the Son at times. So these are what some of these other groups hold to. That's a form of modalism, what I just described. Or I say perhaps they conclude that the Holy Spirit is merely a manifestation of the one true God. Right When I say manifestation, I explain by saying that this would place the Spirit into the category of an Old Testament theophany. I ask it as a question, would it? Right? You know, we talked about theophanies in the Old Testament where God breaks into nature and we suddenly encounter him with our five senses, even though we ordinarily shouldn't be able to. And so we call that theophanies. We know it's truly God, and yet we're experiencing something that on the supernatural level. And so some of these groups don't see that the Holy Spirit is a third person of a triune God. Instead, they amount they um, they um, subscribe to a monotheistic view of God, one God or monad, um, a unit a unity rather than a trinity. And in this one God model, the Spirit of God is just another way of describing God Himself. Like if I were to say, Ariel's Spirit just I mean you know I watched. I watched that Netflix show and it was so good, man. My spirit just left me. I'm talking about Stranger Things, right, or something like that, or 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 Squid Game, right? Um, no, actually, that's not what it means when I say my spirit left me. Um, I'm not talking about a third person of Ariel. I'm actually talking about Ariel. I'm just saying that I was so, um, say, blown away by how good the drama was or the, the TV show was or something like that. So they describe the spirit as just really another way of saying God Himself. And I disagree with that uh, aspect. Although, although, don't get me wrong, the, the, uh, in, in essence, the Spirit is very one with God the Father because they share the same essence, right? They're, remember I said they're co-eternal, they're co-equal, um, they're consubstantial. It's the same, they share the same nature, but they're different in their roles. The Father sends the Spirit. The Spirit is sent by the Father. He, he's eternally aspirated. Um, to use the, the the technical term of the verb, so he's eternally aspirated from the sun as well. All right, we're not we don't want to get into the filioque debate all over again. Let me keep reading my commentary. I go on to say as we uh, as we are beginning to ascertain non messianic Judaism, Unitarian Christianity, and Orthodox Trinitarian Christianity all have their sometimes opposing views on this enigmatic topic. I'm of the belief that the Bible was written by monotheistic believers from start to finish. And yet at the same time, especially when we get to the New Testament portions, we begin to experience the writings of what Dr. James White calls um, experiential Trinitarians. What that means is he's trying to say that the Trinity is a truth that was experienced by the writers of the New Testament in real time and so for them, it's not necessary to always articulate what Trinity means because they actually simply experienced it and wrote down what the Holy Spirit told them to write down after the fact. And so it's not necessary always to explain it. Um, and I bring that up because Unitarians are fond of reminding me that Trinity is a doctrine that came later in the 4th century by the Catholic Church. It's an invention of Catholic Christianity. 
And yet I refudiate, I repudiate that view. I refute that. I, I, I disagree with that model and that perspective. I believe that the Bible is written by, yes, we can assume monotheism, we can assume that, but the Bible was also written by experiential Trinitarians. Even, even as far back going into the Old Testament, there are lots of places where we can see that this God in his complexity is revealing himself in more than what we can allow if we're just talking about a, um, a strict monotheistic or a strict monad. just doesn't work. All right, so um, let's keep reading my commentary. I go on to say, however, as familiar and helpful as the ancient Christian creeds and confessional formulas are to historical and orthodox forms of uh, Trinitarian Christianity or what the Holy Spirit actually is, must, at the end of the day, I'm sorry, who or what the Holy Spirit actually is, must, at the end of the day, be derived from the only authoritative sources that we have that contain uh, Hashem's complete and inspired stamp of approval. So, what do I say in my commentary? Those sources just so happen to be the Tanakh and the Apostolic Scriptures, that is to say, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's why I mentioned what I said about experiential Trinitarians and um, uh, things like that. We have our creeds as Christians, and yes, those creeds were formulated later than the, the biblical writings themselves. And so, from a creedal perspective, those were invented perhaps by, you can say Catholic Christianity, you can say Orthodox Christianity, since they both kind of coexisted at the same time until the formal split near the 1000s. Um, from uh, between uh, Catholic Christianity and Orthodox Christianity, right? The Great Schism. However, um, for Unitarian or non-Trinitarian Christian groups to imagine that um, the final authority can be derived from those extra biblical sources, as if we Trinitarians quote our creeds because we believe they're inspired, um, it's better if they understand that no, we're not saying they are. They're on the same level as, as um, Scripture. At the end of the day, when I, as an Orthodox with a small o, um, a Jewish Christian, seek to stand on the truth of Trinity, I do it from the Bible. I don't do it from the creeds, that's the point I'm trying to make. And so, make it a habit to um, learn what the creeds say. You can even memorize them, right? That's fine. But make it a better habit to uh, memorize what the Bible says about the triune nature of God. Let's continue. So I go on to say, therefore, let us revisit some of the passages that we briefly surveyed in part two, when we in paper two, when we were primarily investigating whether or not Yeshua is indeed, quote, very God veiled in human flesh, end quote. And then in my commentary, I show you that um, here are the verses that appeared under that particular column uh, for the Holy Spirit for us to zero in on a bit more closely, which we're not going to do tonight. And in the order in which Karm listed, here are the particular verses. So let me go ahead and read them and then um, look at the label and then kind of give some brief, the briefest of comments. I'm not going to spend too much time on this. Um, originally I was going to, but then I thought, you know, um, we'll have time to look at passages from time to time. And I'm even going to undertake perhaps a... Um, an addendum or an excursus to this commentary um, where we're going to look at Unitarian objections and the passages that they bring up, that Trinitarians bring up and that Unitarians object to, and I'll give my own re uh, kind of response to the Unitarian rejection. But for now, let's look at this um, chart. So we got Holy Spirit is called God in the book of Acts, chapter 5, 
And of course, that's a familiar story where Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira about lying to the Spirit. And then he goes on to say, you've not lied to the Spirit, but you've lied to God. And so we see there that the Holy Spirit wears the same label and title as God. And we we, we can even hear some Unitarian or non-Trinitarian agreements um, and many Trinitarian agreements because the word God can some be sometimes be ambiguous or um, can carry a bit of equivocation. Do we are we talking about the when we say some you know subject is God in 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 this example we can fill in the blank there with um, Father is God Son is God Spirit is God so subject is God when we look at that is sign and then we have the word God on the end of that um, statement that truth statement subject is God we have to remember that from a modern identity argument perspective the is can be either an is of identity. Or it can be an is of predication, like an is of quality, or in, uh, describing the nature of someone. So um, this perhaps isn't maybe apparently what the Bible writers may have always meant. I am of the impression that when they say uh, X is God, or when verses show up in the, and God is applied to those particular subjects, that more often than not, um, the, the default is that we're talking about the identity of the being known as God, and at the same time, we're describing that this subject shares that nature or that that quality of that being, and thus the class known as God uh, includes this particular subject. So, we, in in this description, we can say Father, Son, and Spirit are all God. They they belong to the class known as God, or the um they have all the the same nature, the homoousius, uh, the share the, they share the same nature. But at the same time, um, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that sometimes uh, the word God there is used as a title. And so um, if you just say Jesus is God, you then have to contend with the, with a similar statement, is the Father or the Son. They're both, if Father is a title and the Son is a title, well, then that's, that's, that's an illogical statement. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father. Unless you are a, a, a one that's Pentecostal, then you do believe that the Father is the Son, the Son is the Father, or something to that effect. All right, so that's what we talked about in that particular verse. Uh, the Holy Spirit is called God. I think that's a qualitative statement there, not necessarily a, a, a title. Um, the Holy Spirit shares the same nature as God, and he belongs to the same class as God. Thus, he is the third person of the singular being known as God, and he's fully God, right? He doesn't lack in anything, he, uh, in any way, shape, or fashion. Likewise, the Holy Spirit is creator in the same way that he's called God. Uh, the Holy Spirit was present at creation, right? He hovered over the surface of the waters, and Moses records that for us. And yet, the question is, is it the Spirit that's being sent from God that hovered over the surface of the waters, or was it God himself as a Spirit hovering over the surface of the waters? And so we could have a discussion either way. But um, we have a relevant passage from the book of Job, two references there, where Job says, you know, the Holy Spirit created me or the Spirit created me, et cetera, et cetera. Depending on which version you're using of the Bible, it talks about uh, being created. Uh, we go on to look at um, the Holy Spirit resurrected. The Holy Spirit resurrected in Romans 8, 11. Um, the subject was uh, Jesus. Who resurrected Jesus? From a generic Bible point of view, the Father resurrected Jesus. He's the one that brought Jesus back from the dead. Uh, most of the passages that you survey out of the Bible are going to term it or, or describe it something similar to um, the Father is the one that raised Jesus from the dead. But there are enough passages in the Bible that have either Jesus 
uh, stating that he will raise himself from the dead, right? You know, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up again. I have the authority to lay down my life and take it and take it back up again. Um, and then in the in Romans eight, we see that's the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So, um, you know, that gives us again this 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 composite view where, and this has always been my suggestion for non-Trinitarians, is let the Bible speak for itself, sola scriptura and tota scriptura. What do I mean by these two phrases? I'll flash a little graphic on the screen so you can see this. Sola scriptura is a Latin phrase meaning the scriptures alone. Sola scriptura, solely is where we get our word. Solely the scriptures, sola scriptura. The scriptures alone are our final authority on all matters. That doesn't mean that there are other um resources that can't speak into our lives there most certainly are other resources that can and should speak into your life but at the end of the day there's only one final authority of of in your life and that's god's word so sola scriptura and then the other phrase tota scriptura is a latin phrase uh, that refers to the totality of scripture so tota refers to total the scriptures in their totality, in their entirety. Stop cherry picking your your passages. Stop using proof texts, right? Um, stop picking favorite passages that because they um, fit your theology, and then ignoring the ones that don't fit your theology, right? That's bad exegesis, right? You want all of the Bible, and you want the scripture in it in its um, authoritative uh, stance. So, the Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus. Jesus resurrected himself, and God also resurrected Jesus. That's how we see Trinity. The Holy Spirit indwells us as believers, but yet it's the Spirit of God who indwells us, but yet it's the Spirit of Jesus who indwells us. And this is another way that we see um, this triune God uh, revealing himself to us in the way that he interacts with us. It's all done via the Spirit, right? Obviously, Jesus is a man, and yet if he indwells all of us simultaneously, it must be by his Spirit. And yet it's the Holy Spirit, and yet it's the Spirit of God. It's all it's all three, and yet it's one God. So that's how it works. We saw that in the book of John. Uh, the Holy Spirit is everywhere, right? He's everywhere at the same time. He's not limited to um, one place at a time. Jesus is a man, and as far as I can tell, he can't appear in multiple places at the same time. He might be able to, but I don't have any verses that support that view. Uh, as far as I can tell, he's at one place at one, one time, one point of time, but... Because his spirit is indwelling us, then he can, in that sense, be everywhere at the same time. Now, the Holy Spirit is pure spirit, so he can be everywhere at the same time. The book of Psalms uh, reveals that to us. Let's keep reading. The Holy Spirit is all-knowing, which means he lacks no knowledge. But, of course, God knows everything. And Yeshua, now sitting at the right hand of the Father, also, I'm guessing, knows everything. I don't have a verse that states that he knows everything. Perhaps uh, the Father has finally told him when he's finally going to return to earth. Maybe he didn't yet. I'm not sure. We don't have a verse that emphatically states that Jesus knows everything now that he's ascended to the Father. But we do have verses that talk about that the Spirit searches the hearts because the Spirit knows all things, um, like uh, it says in 1 Corinthians. This same Holy Spirit sanctifies us. And yet, we find verses where it is God who sanctifies us, and yet Jesus sanctifies us as well. In fact, the Word of God sanctifies us. Um, so, there's language that's supplied by the Bible that gives us a, an inside peek into the nature and the functions of God. And that's where we have this kind of overlap. When we talk about um, Trinity, I'm fond of reminding you, I'll put a little graphic on the screen for this too. I'm fond of, fond of reminding you that there's the ontological view of God, where we're talking about the nature of God, ontology, 
uh, the branch of metaphysics that deals with the nature of a being. And then there's the economic trinity, where we're talking about the functions and roles that God plays, especially in history and in, through, in, in and through salvation. And so when we're looking at this list of um, terms on the left side of this table, there we have many overlaps between ontology and econo uh, economy when it comes to Trinity. So the Holy Spirit sanctifies in First Peter. The Holy Spirit is the life giver in Second Corinthians. And again, these labels overlap with God the Father and God the Son in many cases. Not a hundred percent across the board do they overlap, but in many cases um, we find verbiage uh, where it talks about how one person of the Trinity is doing this or has this quality or has this this um, characteristic about him, and yet another member of the Trinity has that same or similar quality, and, it, and the Bible gives those same words or terms or key um, um, ways of describing that other person so that we can understand that we're dealing with this one being known as God and yet three who's. Uh, so we've got life giver in 2 Corinthians. We have this fellowship with the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians and in Philippians, which is shared across the three persons as well, right? It's not exclusive to one person only. Um, obviously, the Holy Spirit is eternal, just like God is eternal, and Yeshua also is eternal, Romans and, he and the book of Hebrews. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. Otherwise, the Bible wouldn't describe him as having a will in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a problematic passage for non-Trinitarians who want to describe um, the Holy Spirit as, as being this impersonal it, this force like um, electricity or, or something like that. Jehovah's Witnesses have this perspective. Again, no, not all non-Trinitarians hold that perspective. There are some non-Trinitarians who believe that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, the person of God the Father or the Spirit, uh, the Spirit of the Father or God the Spirit, just in, spoken of in different um, ways, right? So in that sense, obviously the Spirit's going to have personality because God himself has personality. So they don't have a problem with passages like that. Uh, the Holy Spirit, again, if he were a, a non-personal object, then he wouldn't be able to have intelligent speech. But the Bible says he does speak, right? The book of Acts. He speaks and um, he demonstrates his intelligence by speaking. An impersonal force or object can't have intelligent speech unless it's programmed into them, right? My computers can speak to me, uh, but it's because they've been programmed to do so. They can't do it in and of themselves. They can't speak. And then as we wrap up this list, we say that the Holy Spirit is love, just like God is love. And obviously, the, um, Jesus himself demonstrates uh, love. The book of Romans, the Holy Spirit there. The Holy Spirit searches the hearts of men in 1 Corinthians, just like God searches the hearts and Yeshua himself knows what's in the heart of people. He demonstrated this ability as he when he was here on earth, right? He knew what people were thinking, knew what people were um, um, uh, forming in their hearts. He could tell when people had a, a hard heart, a hard, hardened heart when when their hearts weren't right towards God, he he demonstrated this knowledge, demonstrating his ability of 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 being one with the Father. And then finally, the Holy Spirit gives joy. He provides that joy. Of course, um, we have this joy from the Father and joy from the Son. And the Holy Spirit is spoken of this in the Book of Romans. So there you have it. Those are some passages for you to um, chew on some more. Go back and read through the list on your own and meditate on the passages there. And um, better yet, go back and look at the, the full list in paper to above and notice how God is demonstrated to be this complex unity in the way that he um, allows his word to describe him uh, across the personages. Let's keep reading through the commentary. Let me read just one more paragraph uh, and we'll uh, call it quits tonight. 
Um, starting right there, I say in my commentary. So, having read through the above-mentioned passages, and we didn't read all the passages, but just pretend that we did. Having read through it with a mind in tune to listen to the voice of God speaking about himself. Right? I can't emphasize that enough. Let God's work speak for itself. Stop cutting God short by saying, well, yes, I believe passage A, but I reject passage B for, and then you fill in the blank with all your reasons, right? You you distrust it because you think it's been tampered with, or you think uh, certain versions are better than other versions because uh, they came earlier, and or um, it's a questionable passage, so you toss that out altogether just because um, the different manuscripts have variations or something like that, or um, you don't like that particular passage because your denomination disagree with disagrees with it, or um, you don't think it's authoritative, or set, you fill in the blank with all kinds of really nonsensical reasons as to why God can't speak for himself, and you're really cutting God short. Let him speak for himself. Let him speak about himself. All right. What I say is that in doing so, I can only hope that we have situated ourselves as able to, quote, be challenged um, to come to the conclusion that the Spirit of God is just what the Scriptures reveal Him to be. And in so doing, we have to sometimes be allowed, be, be uh, ready to be moved into places where it's uncomfortable, right? We talked about Hebraic ways of approaching the, the Scriptures versus a non-Hebraic worldview, right? Allowing for paradoxes and this and that versus this and this or that. Um, when we read through the Bible and let it speak for itself, here are the conclusions that we come to. The Spirit is fully God and yet fully unique, right? At times, speaking of the Spirit, His actions are likened to that of a quote, power from God, end quote. Yeah, sometimes it does. And other times, he reacts and interacts with God as an equal, viz, the third person of the Trinity. And so that's what we're going to find when we let the Bible speak for itself. And I'm going to maintain that challenge. I know that non-Trinitarian groups claim that they are reading all of the Bible and allowing it to speak for themselves. I know they claim that their position is biblical. At least the biblical Unitarians do. I'm not sure about some of the other groups. I can't speak for them, but I've heard biblical Unitarians confess, oh yeah, we're, in fact, it's in their label. It's in their name, at least the ones that call themselves biblical Unitarians. But over and over, when I bring up passages that speak contrary to their position of who God is, either in his, in the person of the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, then they start bringing out all of their excuses as to why those passages can't be saying what they really say, right? They start backpedaling or they start adding all kinds of dubious um, uh, excuses as to why the verse doesn't just say what it really means, you know, insults, insults hurled at Trinitarians like we're trying to take the shortest path to from point A to point B to come to what the Bible's saying. So let's just read the Bible and let's just let it speak for itself. I go on to say, still at other times, speaking of the Spirit, he interacts with humanity in ways that unmistakably reveal his personality as the Spirit of the living God, not simply as an impersonal attribute of God, right? He's not merely a force or even he's not even merely a quality that God bestows upon us, right? I've heard that explanation by Unitarian Christians as well. God, the Holy Spirit is this this gift from God that he he bestows to us, that he gives to us. 
uh, that he grants us, you know, to to walk in it, the power of the Spirit, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not really the person of God that comes into us or something like that. But I disagree. So, uh, in conclusion to this paragraph, as I'm winding this part of my study down, I go on to say, through the Bible, the Spirit clearly reveals himself to be God's very own Spirit, to be very, to be very God himself, and yet these same scriptures allow him to be revealed to mankind as the person known as the Holy Spirit sent by God. So, he is God, right? Qualitatively, he is God, shares the same nature, consubstantial, and yet at the same time, he's a third person that is sent and commissioned by God. In this role, he's similar to the Son. He has a kind of messenger status to him. He can be being thought of almost as an agent. So we, we Unitarians are fond of talking about the, the idea of agency and that Jesus is an agent sent by the Father. An agent is someone who uh, is thought of as almost in a lesser role and function than the primary, the one doing the sending. So if a king sends an agent to speak on his behalf, it's obviously understood that the primary, which is the king, is greater in status than the agent, the one being sent. And yet, there are aspects where we're talking about personhood and um, uh, uh, subordination where the, the Son and the Spirit play subordinate roles to the Father. But we're talking about persons. We're talking about um, the economy of God, the economic Trinity part. We're not talking about ontological subordination. So we reject, as Trinitarians, we reject subordinationism where the Son is ontologically subordinate to the Father. That is, he's, he's a lesser God or he's a lesser being. The Holy Spirit is a lesser being in quality or something like that. We reject that as biblical Trinitarians. But at the same time, we do have clear language that demonstrates that there is some hierarchy in the economies of God, where the Son is eternally begotten from the Father, He is an eternal Son, and the Father is an eternal Father, and the Spirit is eternally sent from the Father and the Son. And those, those, that nature is is eternal. The Son is eternally a Son. The Father is eternally a, a Father, and the Spirit is eternally uh, 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 sent from the Father and the Son. But it's eternal. There wasn't a time when the Son was created. There wasn't a time when the Spirit was whipped up by God, um, etc., etc. So it, it's a mystery to us, but we we accept it because the Bible describes it as mystery. And we accept it because the Bible describes it as factual truth. So I go on to conclude in this section as I'm winding down tonight. I go on to say, as long as we remember that God can and does reveal himself to mankind progressively resulting in information limitation as I read the Bible from beginning to ending, right? You know what I mean when I say invitation, information limitation? I mean, we don't have all the words that are supplied and all the details that are spelled out, but God knows that they are there even though God doesn't say them. So it's not as if God became Trinitarian when Jesus was born, it's not as God as if God became a triune God when the Holy Spirit was poured out in Acts chapter 2. That's not what's taking place. Rather, we believe with a perfect faith that we Trinitarians, we believe that God has always existed as Trinity, even though he hasn't revealed that aspect or doesn't articulate it in every single passage like some biblical Unitarians want to imagine that it should. 
And the case in point I like to bring up, just in case you're not following what I'm saying, when I talk about information limitation, I'll put this little graphic on the screen as well. This is one of my favorite examples. The very first few verses in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, talk about God creating the heavens and the earth, etc., etc. And if you read down through chapter 1 of Genesis, over and over again, it's God speaking, God speaking, God creating through His spoken word. And His Spirit is the one that hovers over the surface of the waters. If you look at face value at the passage, it doesn't really talk about Jesus being the creator or the eternal word of God, uh, right? The Logos. Uh, and it doesn't talk about the spirit doing the creating. But what we have is a narrative that supplies language that the later prophets and writings and New Testament scriptures fill in with the the, the word which went forth from God, the Spirit which went forth, the Word which created. And John reveals this as the, the eternal Word which was with God and which was God. This Logos, this Word which existed alongside God eternally and yet um, incarnated and became flesh. And thus Paul can then write in certain books that he penned that, that Jesus is the one by whom and through whom and in whom all things are created, right? Tapanta, all things are created by God, or by uh, 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 Jesus. And um, but the point I'm trying to say is that in the very first few verses, it doesn't say, in the beginning, God, through Jesus and the Spirit, created the heavens and the earth. Even though theologically, we fill that information in later on through using other passages out of the Bible. We realize that Jesus, as the eternal word, plays this agency role where God is creating through him, and yet he's given creatorship title and attributes because he is the creator. He's the uncreated. He stands on the side of creator, not on the side of created. He is not a created thing. So the book of Genesis didn't say in the beginning, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, or God through Jesus, if we want to say agency. It doesn't say that. And yet we know that's truth because of what the Bible tells us later on in the Bible. So what was what gives? Why didn't God say all that stuff? Well, that's what I call information limitation. I'm borrowing that from Dr. Uh, James Anderson, that terminology. So, so we got um, kind of progressive revelation that's being revealed to us uh, a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more until we culminate in the later parts of the Bible. So this results in information limitation as we read the Bible, kind of confuses us at some times, a little bit frustrating to us. Uh, but as long as we realize that from beginning to end, then what I say is I find no logical contradiction with God's self-disclosure as the Orthodox Christian Trinitarian position conveys it. And so I'm going to stand on that position because um, it's the position that allows, and I say this in closing, this position allows for God to speak for himself, not just in his totality, because now I have the benefit of reading the Bible in its entirety, but also owing to the fact that even when I look at the earlier parts of the Bible, where Unitarians are trying to say, well, there's no Trinity there, right? There's no Trinity in the Old Testament. It's something that was invented by Catholic Christians in the 4th century or something that was talked about a little bit earlier, but nope, it's not there in the, New in the Old Testament. I think Dr. Tuggy's fond of saying, nope, there's no Trinity in the Old Testament. Well, there's a little bit of credit to what he's saying owing to the fact that God didn't reveal himself in certain ways at earlier times. But that's God's prerogative. The book of Hebrews opens up by telling me that, that in times past, God spoke to us through the prophets and through the um, uh, 
through the, the the Psalms and the prophets and through his 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 through the fathers, but now he speaks to us through his son. So God is entirely allowed to to um progressively reveal the way and the details that he that he shares with us and give us a little bit more and a little bit more as time moves forward. So again, that doesn't mean that he didn't exist as Trinity. It simply means that we didn't read about it. Right, but the truth was still there, even though we couldn't see it, even though we couldn't read about it. So that's the point I'm trying to bring up. That'll do it for tonight's study on uh, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We'll um, stop right here. Next week we'll finish this uh, conclusion conclusionary section to who or what is the Holy Spirit with with another quote from my favorite author Tim Haig, um, where he talks about um, uh, a, a proper view of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we'll do that next week, okay? So that'll do it for Exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to the video, watch the video for tonight, and then after the video's over, um, oops, you know what? I skipped the liturgy. Well, we read some Greek liturgy earlier um, when we read through our Roman study. Let me just uh, remind us once again of some of the um, Hebrew liturgy. Uh, let's see, where did I have it? There we go. We were looking at Exodus. We looked at this uh, last week, two weeks, and three weeks ago. And I wanted to read these one more time just in their entirety. Three verses in the liturgy, just verse 13, 14, and 15 of Exodus chapter 3. I'm not going to read any Greek tonight because we read through some Greek uh, uh, earlier in the Roman study. So let's just look at this. Exodus 3, I'll read the English and then the Hebrew over on the uh, right side of the page. That'll be the liturgy for tonight. And I won't wax long on this. It was a kind of a mini study on the name of God, uh, I am who I am, and things like that. If you missed all that, go back and listen to last week's study, episode number 148, and just listen to the liturgy part. Um, Exodus 3, verse 13, Then God said to Moses, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Let's go back and read up and read the uh, Hebrew real quick, starting on the right side of the page right there. Verse 13 says, Vayomer Moshe el ha-Elohim, hine anochi el b'nei Yisrael, va'amarti lachem, Elohe avotechem, shlachni alechem, va'amru li ma shmoma omar alechem. Verse 14 says, Vayomer Elohim el Moshe, Eche asher Eche. We looked at how last week that this term Eche is actually God's personal way in first person pronoun saying that I am. But when Moses relays God's name back to the people, he drops down into third person, just like we would do in English, saying he is. Thus, Eche is the way God would say his name, but Yahweh is the way we would say his name. And that's the careful distinction. And that's why throughout the Bible, Eche shows up very, very uh, briefly, doesn't show up in very many places, primarily right here in Exodus 3 and a few, a few other places, but primarily Eche only comes out of God's mouth directly. But 6,000 plus times throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we find the writer saying, He is, He is. That's Yahweh, Yahweh. Okay? Um, so, 
Um, and then verse uh, 15 says, Elohim Zikri la daughter, daughter, and that'll do it for the liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the uh, the, the short little video. Uh, those of you with me in live study, um, we'll watch the video, and then after the video is over, we'll just simply dismiss in prayer. You guys ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel in the Bible. Copyright Tete Torah Ministries 2015. All rights reserved. Here's the question we're going to be addressing tonight. Question Why was Paul asked to join four Jewish men in completing a vow in Acts 21 23? Quote, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. End quote. That's Acts 21, 27. So we see right away he didn't even get to finish the vow. And perhaps that indicates that it was null and void. Notice the phrase, when the seven days were almost finished. Some would argue that this proves that his vow was voided and that he wasn't able to keep it anyway. What we know for sure is that he did purify himself on the first day because Acts 21, 26 says so indicating his obedience to Torah commands. He just didn't get to complete all the seven-day rites in accordance with Numbers 6, 9 through 12. So in my opinion, he was able to do what the leaders there instructed him to do. He was able to participate in the vow to the extent that he could. As we read this passage at first, it looks as if we have two seemingly contradictory uh, convictions or concepts occurring in the text. And I say seemingly because in point of fact, the Bible cannot contradict itself. So allow me to articulate what I believe the unspoken contradictions are, and then allow me to attempt to harmonize the two together. So that's what we're going to do tonight. As one reads through the Bible with eyes opened by faith, one comes to the following conclusion affirmed by conviction A, the first one, uh, that Jesus came to bring the sacrifices to their fullness by his once and for all sacrifice on the cross and in doing so accomplished our eternal redemption. Romans 3.24, 1 Peter 2.24, Ephesians 1.7, and 1 Peter, 3, uh, 1 Peter 1, 3-5. That's conviction A, right? That's what most of us have as believers. It's our conviction about the reality of Jesus' atonement and uh, things like that. As one reads through the Tanakh, the Old Testament, one must come to the conclusion implied by concept B, for many it's not a conviction yet, that as long as the temple stood, atonement existed on two levels, temporal and eternal. Temporal atonement for the worshipers as well as for the holy sanctum was procured by offering the mortal blood of animals on the altar at the sanctuary. So we've got our internal reality of Jesus' atonement 
along with this concept that there's this uh, temporal atonement as well. Now, this temporal atonement only provided sanctification for the purification of the flesh. And Leviticus 16, 16, corroborated with Hebrews 9, 13, and 14, actually demonstrates this temporal atonement explicitly. So we know it's not something that we may have to make up on our own. It's something that we can read about in the Bible. All right, what are our conclusions to tonight's short study? If Paul is bringing a sacrifice after Yeshua has already accomplished his finished work on the cross, right, conviction A, yet while the temple was still standing in Paul's day, then the only conclusion that harmonizes conviction A with concept B is that Paul's animal sacrifices were for temporal atonement only. See how he can put those two together. He still affirmed in his heart and spirit that Yeshua's blood afforded him eternal atonement. I don't have a problem with Paul's sacrifices because I don't believe Paul felt his sacrifices competed with Yeshua's sacrifice on the cross. Indeed, as the Hebrews 9, 13, and 14 passage shows us, they work in tandem as long as there was a standing functional, functioning temple. So we should not have a competition. Of course, temporal atonement is a moot point today since, well, there's no temple, right? We can't bring them because there's nowhere to bring them. There's no priest. There are no animals, etc., etc. Lastly, if my stated conclusion is invalid, and there are other possibilities that I did not cover in this short space, then one is left with Paul either compromising on his convictions about Yeshua, which is a position we know can't be tenable, or we have Paul acquiescing out of fear of those Jews who were all, quote, zealous for the law, end quote, like you read about in 21, verse 20 and 21. Right? It's either one of those positions. Either Paul was duplicitous, you know, two-faced, or he was just weak, which I don't think either position is tenable. And like I say here, I don't feel an acquiescing position suits a Paul who demonstrated time and time again in the book of Acts that he was not afraid of opposition. In the context of the situation we are currently focusing on, Paul would not simply become a Jew just to win the favor of those pro-Torah Jews, especially since they were already believers, right? Paul's a believer, they're believers. Why would he simply just become a Jew to be Jews to them? To wit, 1 Corinthians 9.20, where Paul talks about becoming all things to all men, I don't think it can, I don't think it can be Paul's way of approving situation ethics, else this would also excuse uh, doing wrong in order to get a chance to do right, which we know is not the right thing to do. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. That'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. Abba, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to share with the students and to share my thoughts and to participate with them in this uh, great endeavor of studying your words and, and allowing your spirit to equip us uh, to be ambassadors for you, to take this good news and share it with those people that we meet, to be bold in our witness, to live lives that are exemplary and pleasing to you, to, um, to uh, uplift your great name and to... Um, uh, just continue to demonstrate what it means to be a follower of God and uh, a believer in Jesus. Um, we're not perfect in the way we express uh, our belief in you. Um, our lifestyle is lacking many times. Lord, that's why we need your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace, which are renewed every day. Thank you for providing for us time and time again, 
even in the face of the impossible. Uh, thank you, Lord, for healing us and raising us up and keeping us healthy during these last few difficult years of the pandemic and uh, and things like that and the, all of the, the political turmoil in the world. And, and just, Lord, uh, we can really, really get the sense that the second coming of Yeshua is quite near. It's, it's very close to the door. We can kind of get the sense from the state of affairs of, of of things that are happening in the world and reading our Bibles and and just being in tune with the, what the Spirit's saying. So help us to continue to have that blessed hope. Help us to keep our eyes focused on the prize uh, of, of Messiah and um, continuing to look to Him um, uh, as one who is going to uh, take us to be with Him. Right, one day he's going to raise us up and, and call us out, and we're going to be with him, meet him in the clouds. Lord, what a blessed day! So, thank you, Lord, for these promises that are secured for us in the pages of your word. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. Amen.